1: Our Father, we have been so very grateful for the opportunity this last month to give great consideration to the truth of the gospel, the centrality of it to all of our life and conduct. We, again, are very thankful for the men and the women who sacrificed so greatly to give us uh, your word in our own language and also to preserve and to protect the truth for us and to stand for it. Uh, Men of great courage and conviction, many of whom gave their lives uh, for the truth and would not compromise and would not deny you and the great doctrine of justification by faith. So we pray that you would encourage our hearts together today as we uh, answer questions concerning these things and that our hearts and our minds may be uh, open before you and that you, by your Spirit, might teach us and instruct us from your Word. Give us uh, clarity and and an ability to be concise today in our answers and in our questions we ask this, that you might be glorified through this time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, Jess is here. So while he's coming up here, I'm going to give you just a a brief reminder of the things that we covered uh, this last month, the subjects. So I started off with Galatians chapter 1, talking about the fact that justification by faith is a central doctrine of the Christian faith, and that the issue of the Reformation, the heart of it, is a gospel issue. It is not a difference in uh, how we like to do church, the music that we sing, whether we like or dislike liturgy. It's the centrality of the gospel. And that—that that is what the Reformation. That's the heart of the Reformation. Everything we did focused on that. And then I followed up with a message on the sufficiency of Scripture, how that is the formative principle of the Reformation. That ultimately we have to determine what our source of authority is going to be, and we have to believe that Scripture is sufficient. That God has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Then Dave followed up with a message on the Reformation and the human will, talking about how the will is in bondage to our sin and our sin nature, and it is not free in any kind of a libertarian sense. And he talked about this connection with the gospel and uh how the gospel then is presented and what our response to the gospel is and who ultimately gets glory for our salvation. And then Jess talked about justification by faith and faith alone and described the difference between imputed and infused righteousness and what it means to trust in Christ and Christ alone and why that word alone is so central. And then Cornell followed up with the Reformation and the Sacraments, dealing with the Lord's Supper and Baptism and basically said that the other five sacraments that Rome acknowledges are not indeed sacraments, and talked about the difference between our views of the sacraments, that Rome has a sacerdotal view of the sacraments, that they actually convey grace. Just the doing of them conveys or brings a certain amount of grace, as opposed to our view that these things are symbolic. And then Justin finished up with the Reformation and sound doctrine or false teaching and talked about the impact and the implications of false doctrine in the life of a Christian. So those were our five messages or six, six messages, four, five, six. Six messages that we covered and I just wanted to put all of that out there in case it might spark in your mind some question that you have. Is there anybody that has questions here this morning that has not submitted any to us in email or text? Okay, couple. All right, good. So I just need to note in order we can pace our answers to this. So we will start with a couple that were submitted. If you submitted your questions you get priority. We're going to answer yours first. Bruce and Lisa Fuller wrote in. Do you mind if I use your name for this? If you do, we can have somebody edit it out at the uh, afterwards. All right. Bruce and Lisa Fuller ask this: We have a couple that are friends. She was raised in an Italian Catholic family and speaks frequently about church matters, all their good works, etc. He was raised in an evangelical home but converted to Catholicism when they were married almost 40 years ago. One of our questions is surrounding what they call patron saints. He selected Saint Joseph. Not really sure what it all means. At times, it seems like they're talking as if St. Joseph has supernatural powers. Is this something Catholics believe? It seems to be somewhat like the ancient Romans' belief in the Roman gods like Zeus and Jupiter, etc. First question. You guys want to take it?
0: We're just here to go, yeah, that's right.
1: Go ahead. You. You're the one. Cornell emailed me this week. He said, I got like seven pages (laughs) on this subject. And I said, you can't do all seven
0: pages. I reduced it (laughs) to five. (laughs) So, and I'm going to mostly read what I said because, because it was, I, sometimes I get stuff right the first time and when I try to correct it. So the idea of a patron saint is old as Catholicism itself. I, I guess I want a disclaimer here. First of all, we are not haters of Catholics. We, I have Catholic friends whom I love dearly. But what we need to realize is a couple of things. I used to teach on the cults, and I'll, I'll, I'll go quick, Jim. But I used to teach on the cults, and it was amazing to me when I would have people in my classes who from the chairs, from their own personal interests, and from their own life, didn't know what their actual teachings were at the highest levels. I would be teaching on Mormonism, and I would have Mormons come up to me, we don't believe that, and so I would show them in their documentation, and it was, they would, in a couple of cases, (laughs) they stopped coming to the classes, but I made enemies, because I was showing them what they taught. And it's the same thing with Catholics. The average, in the seat, Pew every month, Catholic every day, every week, I should say, doesn't necessarily know what the Council of Trent actually said about the word anathema, and uh, if they saw that, it would probably, in many cases, take them aback. But that is a disclaimer. So, the concept of patron saints is is almost as old as Catholicism itself. the The concept is that they are in heaven, and by the way, you have to be, you have to do certain some number of miracles, and you have to have had miracles done in your name after your death that are provable, etc. And then there's a big series, of a system that is followed to declare a a particular person who has died as a saint in the Catholic um, pantheon, I guess you would call it. So they believe that because these people are closer to God, they have his ear, if you will. And if we pray, asking them, now they'll never say that they pray to the saint. That's not official Catholic doctrine, but they do they pray directly to the saints they'll pray to saint joseph for he's the he's the uh patron saint of um no saint christopher excuse me the patron saint of travel i think and that's why he'll be on, your, on the dashboard. <laughs> I know with the bobblehead and stuff. But, uh, so they'll pray to St. Joseph for various and sundry reasons that we'll talk about a little bit later. But anyway, the official church doctrine is, is that they do not pray to Mary or the saints, but they rather ask Mary and the saints to pray for them. The fact is though, most everyday Catholics pray to saints and Mary all the time. All prayer is a form of worship and includes petition, praise, confession of sin, and prayers for intercession. The only one worthy of our worship is God himself. Catholics point to Revelation 5, 8-14 as a proof text for prayer to the saints. And I won't read it, but if you'll look at Revelation 5, 8-14, you'll see that there's nothing at all in that text that tells us to pray to saints. This is an argument from silence. There is nothing in the text that commands or even suggests that we should pray to anyone other than God himself. In order for us to believe that we can especially silently pray to other than God, we must impute some sort of omniscience to them who have gone before us. Nothing of the sort is even implied. So the idea of a patron saint who can hear your prayers, silent, unspoken prayers, means that we have given to that person, that human person who died and may or may not have gone to heaven, omniscience, omnipotence, and those are attributes that are only owned by God. Only owned by God. And so the the concept of doing this itself is fraught with difficulty because we cannot... We are actually lifting people up to a position that only God occupies. And he says, I will not share my glory with another.
1: I've got one. It goes back to the the idea that there's more than one mediator between God and man other than Christ Jesus. You know, patron saints then serve as other mediators, other people that stand between us and and God. So a similar question that was also with this question, um, Bruce and Lisa write, a neighbor who's trying to sell property purchased a ceramic statue of St. Joseph and plans to bury it in the ground and that it is a widely held belief, at least in Texas, that this will magically help to sell the property. Could you address some of these issues? It smacks of mysticism to us. The first time I heard about burying the statue, we were so stunned we had no idea what to say. Our response was to laugh. Is this something part of the Catholic Church or some sort of hocus-pocus? Could a few scripture references be provided that we could share with our Catholic friends in regard to saints and also burying the statue? <clears throat> uh, is it hocus-pocus and mysticism? It's hocus
0: pocus. Yeah.
2: It's heretical and uh can you hear all right
1: yeah keep talking they'll dial it in for you Uh,
2: one of the practices i was raised catholic a large part of my family uh, was also is still catholic and many uh, of my ancestors came out of catholicism so i was saved out of that but i want to say that it is a form of idolatry, when they lift up certain, quote, patron saints, uh, one of which they pray to for, like Cornell said, Saint Christopher for safety, they're actually giving them not only the uh, attributes of of God, such as omniscience, all-knowing, and being able to intercede on behalf of God is heretical and it's cultish. They practice that that not only praying to saints but also to Mary as the intercessor for Christ. Uh, One of the other practices they do have statue forms of these various saints which they also have candles in front of in which you go into a Catholic Church building and they'll have places where you can pray to the various saints light candles and those prayers are a form of intercessory to God so it's all cultish and it's extremely heretical and unfortunately many are duped by this and take comfort in that I sadly say that members of my own family in their time close to death called upon the priest for the sacrament of extramunction, which is the last sacrament that they offer in a Catholic church to assure them that they'll get to heaven. And it reduces their time in purgatory and it gives them a fast track to heaven. So these practices have unfortunately led many to the road of perdition rather than leading them to the knowledge of Christ, who is the only way of our salvation.
1: And in terms of Scripture references that you would use to refute that, I would say any New Testament verse that talks about the saints, look at to whom that is addressed. It's not addressed to dead people who are in heaven interceding for us. It's addressed to people who are alive. Paul even calls the, the, the uh, fleshly, um, worldly Christians in Corinth, saints. And those are people who are still alive at the time, not people who are dead.
3: Yeah, it's First Peter two nine two eight or nine somewhere in there, we he referred to as a priesthood of believers. Uh, 1 Timothy two five. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the man Jesus Christ. Um, there's there are no other no other intermediaries between us and Christ. That's part of the solus Christus, one of the solas. We take it to mean uh, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is obviously true and was part of the Reformation. But that Christ alone also means Christ is head of the church and the only intermediary between God and man. There's no pope. We, we need no priest. We need no cardinal. We need, we need no man other than the man, Jesus Christ.
1: You might be able to get to the heart of addressing this with Catholic friends by asking them, what in Scripture says that this is going to work? Where do you get this from the Bible? And of course, they can't get it from the Bible, which is why they turn to extra-biblical sources like tradition or the, the um, church um, magisterium. Uh, as an authority for that. So I, I rather than asking them, asking you to refute such a claim when from Scripture, I would say, where, where in the Bible do you get that? If you can't get that in Scripture, then it's it's an unbiblical practice. Right.
2: Well, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off of Dave, 1 Timothy 2 5. For there is one God
0: and one mediator. And it's so clear. One mediator. Mediator is capitalized. There can't be any more than one. Of course,
2: the Catholics have got many as we all
1: know. All right, another question submitted. Oh, go ahead.
2: One last thing about
0: that. There's an interesting story in Exodus chapter 32 where Aaron tore a whole bunch of, had people tear their earrings off and he fashioned them into a false god. But he didn't call it a false god. He called it a statue that they would worship the Lord towards. If you read that section, he is telling the Israelites not that they're going to worship a golden calf uh, as a representation of one of the gods of Egypt, but rather that they would worship the Lord. So just creating a statue itself was blasphemy, was according to uh, the the scripture was blasphemy. Aaron clearly told the Israelites they would make a statue of the Lord and have a feast to him. God condemned this as well. Even though they thought they were worshiping the true God through the agency of this idol, God condemns it, and he condemns it today as well. Another, Another Old Testament verse would be Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. So,
1: Alright, another question submitted by Bruce and Lisa. Also, could you address, even though it's been made more and more clear through the sprawl lectures and Sunday teachings, why it was okay for folks to commit all manners of immorality that would run in later on Friday or Saturday night to confession, leave the church, and continue in the same behavior? We've often reflected on this from our youth. And I think that that's the idea of indulgences, that you can do something or buy something, or just simply do penance and make up for your sin. That idea, I, simply, I think, certainly would lead to an antinomian or lawless licentious lifestyle. It could be an excuse for more sin. Did you guys add anything to that?
2: Yes, I just wanted to mention as well, when we think of that and think of the passage in Exodus twenty ten or 5, then you have to realize that that's a command of God. We're to worship no one else other than God. So we, we recognize, I might have given a misquote on that text. We have to recognize a couple of things. When they uh, practice what they call confession, which is one of their sacraments before they do the sacrament of communion, they go to a man they call a priest, who is not a priest according to Scripture, and they confess their sins. And as a part of that absolution that they give, they are given certain penance. You say certain prayers, you light candles, you may make an offering for indulgences for your penance. This is another heretical practice by which they keep people uh, under the influence of thinking that they can alleviate their guilt and if you talk to anyone that's uh, been converted to Christianity Christianity that was former Catholic, they will acknowledge how guilt-ridden they were throughout their whole lives as Catholics because you can never have your sins forgiven. There's always a form that you're supposed to be able to do because it's an infused righteousness that you're able to take care of your sins through Confessing to a priest, that they call a priest, and then offering indulgences. And they're the intercessors for God, where Scripture says we have Christ as our intercessor.
1: Okay, next question was submitted by Seath Berbe. Berbe? Yeah, what do you do with leftover communion? What do you guys do with leftover communion?
3: Well, congratulations, Seth, we've been saving it up as a graduation present <laughs> to you, so, a few more years, I have no idea.
1: Do I asked that question because it does get to the, the heart of how you view those elements, and I think that's something that Cornell talked about. Is there, is there in that little piece of bread or wafer some magical or sacramental uh, property and the same thing in the juice—is there something magical, mystical, or gracious about the juice itself, or are these just elements that we use at the direction of the Lord to observe His His death and resurrection? And so, it is entire. I think John and Andrea drink the juice and probably take the crackers home, put them in uh, clam chowder. But we can do that. We can do that because they're only elements. It's all there. There's nothing, there's nothing magical or mystical or sacramental going on up here in terms of any kind of a sacrifice being taking place. Whereas in the, in the Roman Catholic communion, the Roman Catholic mass, those elements they view as the body and blood of, of Christ. <clears throat> that's why you cannot, in a Roman Catholic mass, that's why uh, you cannot go out, uh, they don't distribute the juice like we do up here because they believe that you're actually holding the blood of Christ. And if you were to spill that on the floor and trample underfoot the literal blood of the Son of, of God, what, what, what would then become of you? See, there's a, a view of what those elements are in themselves that is unbiblical. And so, they're just it's just crackers and juice. That's all
0: it is. And though we have nice leather-bound and gold-embossed uh, Bibles, this itself is just an element. It's not a, 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 an object worthy of veneration of any sort. The word inside here, God elevates above his name, he says. Mm-hmm. But the book... It's paper you know, I have, I have quite a few of these, and, and when they wear out, I don't bury them or give them a service. I get a new one. Um,
1: all right, we'll take one from the audience. So, Taryn, you had one? You get priority because you're my daughter. Go ahead. Can any believer baptize? We've had non, non-elders. So your question really is, is it something that just the elders do within the context of the local church? Dave?
3: <laughs> well, I, I don't see anything in Scripture that says the only people that can perform a baptism Elders, but at the same time, it is a, it is a sacred rite. It's uh, it's something that ought to be done with trepidation and fear. Uh, it is a commitment to die to your old life and rise in newness of life. It's a it's a you're you're symbolically dying and being resurrected. You're you're demonstrating the work of Christ on your behalf. So it's not something where you just a bunch of people gather around and just start having a baptism party. And that, I think that is. Sacrilegious. Right? And it, it lacks the reverence that is due to that particular rite. So uh, I would say baptism ought to occur in a church context. And the mm-hmm. context is you are immersing the person into the body of Christ. And so that ought to be demonstrated by the witness of a body of believers.
1: And the body of believers that you are part of a fellowship with, too. I've had people ask me if, if, I, could, if I could baptize them when they're, they're really their home church is somewhere else. And I always say you, you need to go to where your home church is, where you're a member, where you're under that leadership, and part of that body, and be and do that with those people. So, under anything but extreme circumstances, I would suggest that that's exactly how we should partake of baptism. Clear? Cleared up? Okay. Another one yeah, from just,
3: the just to, if somebody if somebody wanted to baptize their children or something like that, as long as everybody, you know, we we had some some assurance that they understood what was happening. I don't think there's any biblical prohibition against that kind of thing. Yep. thing.
1: Right, let me take another one from the paper, and then I'll go to Nathal, because she had one as well. Uh, Thomas Leo asks, Today Roman Catholics would not consider anathema to be anything more than excommunication, not condemnation. So why do you make the claim that it is condemnation? And I, I made the claim in, when preaching on Galatians 1 that, that well, I think, I think all of us made this claim at some point, that Rome anathematizes us. Right, it's not that like we're saying Roman Catholics are all damned. That's not what we're saying, um, or that all Roman Catholics are damned. We made the claim that we are making the claim that their perversion of the gospel is a damnable heresy, and we are making the claim that Rome anathematizes us. They say, if you believe in justification by faith alone, you're damned. If you say that uh, that some work of God is necessary upon the human will for you to be saved, you're damned. If you say, they make these claims about the things that we believe and then say we are damned, or they use the term anathema. But now, today Roman Catholics want to soften that a little bit and say, well, we don't mean, by by anathema, we don't mean damned, even though anathema means damned. By anathema, we don't mean damned. We just mean excommunicated or kicked out of the church. Right, which in the Roman Catholic perspective is just one step. You're just moving the ball back one step because in the Roman Catholic view of things, if you are not part of the Mother Church, you are damned. Right, salvation is only found in the Roman Catholic Church, even though the present Pope, who's very liberal, seems to, and the previous Pope as well, had those universalistic overtones when they suggest that you can be an anonymous Christian, you can be saved through Jesus Christ without ever hearing that name, etc. But all all of that ultimately comes back to the work that the Roman Catholic Church does on behalf of them. So if you're excommunicated from the church, you are damned. So it means the same thing. It's a distinction only and
0: not really a difference at all. It uh, just really quickly that, that covers it. That's the that's the light and the dark of it. But okay, so we can move on. Yeah. Go, on, no, I'm on. kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, the word anathema <laughs> actually is one of those words that has can have a positive meaning. It means set aside for something, but it came to mean set aside for perdition, is what it came to mean. And so in 824, the a Catholic Catechism it says it is the Church that the fullness of the means. It is in the Church that the fullness of the means of salvation has been deposited. In an 846, it says, so you can see this logical progression. Uh, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. This is Catholic teaching. The one Christ is the mediator in the way of salvation. He is present to us in the body, in his body, which is the church. And then last, the church is Catholic. She proclaims the fullness of the faith. She bears in herself and administers the totality of the means of salvation. These three dictums taken from the current teaching explain that the only means of salvation, as Jim said, is through the Catholic Church. And there's another place where they say, if you know this and you refuse to acknowledge it, you are most certainly anathema. So, at any rate, it's and again, the rank and file, they may not know that, but this has never been abrogated. This is the teaching of Trent and and prior to that and it has never been abrogated.
1: And the Roman Catholics have painted themselves into a corner because they cannot go back on that. See, that that is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the magisterium, the popes, the councils. That's the dogma handed down to them. So that is, in their view, is authoritative of Scripture. So they can't take something that was handed down 400 years ago and say, well, that's no longer true, because that is as inspired and infallible and authoritative as Scripture itself for them. So they painted themselves into a corner where they they can't deny what they've already said um, as much as they might want to. All right, and the next question from Thomas was, is anyone attending the Catholic Church going to heaven?
2: Go ahead. Uh, uh, That's a very good question, I think, and we need to understand uh, the answer to that. If they're Catholic, they're not going to heaven. Um, A question was asked, that same question was asked to John MacArthur. Somebody said, is the Pope uh, going to be in heaven? And he responded with, is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So by Catholic,
1: by Catholic, we mean embracing Roman embra- Catholic teaching, not just attending a church, but if you believe what Catholics believe, by that is what just means by, are you Catholic?
2: Yes, and embracing Roman Catholicism, embracing the idea that you have an infused righteousness that comes through the grace extended through the church, the Catholic church. So when we think of that, we have to understand... A person who hears the gospel will not hear it from a priest at a Catholic church that is teaching through their what they call missals. They will never present the gospel according to scripture. So to ask if somebody could be in the Catholic church and be saved, somebody could hear the gospel outside of the Catholic church and be a Catholic and be saved, I was one. And so are several members of my family that came to the knowledge of Christ. It was by God's grace, but they wouldn't be able to remain there because they would never have biblical teaching. So if they claim to be saved, claim to be Christians, they would seek teaching and the fellowship of the true brother. Okay.
1: The question is, is the act of indulgences, giving money and putting it into a coffer, still active today, the idea of indulgences?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, because I still have several members of my extended family, not my immediate family, that are practicing Catholicism. They do continue to practice in giving of indulgences. And it's all uh, in part of the priest giving them some form of, penance, and they see that as a form of absolution from their sin. So they continue to practice giving of indulgences.
1: Most recently... Money.
2: Yes, no, money is indulgences. It's
1: one of them, but most recently the Pope, the last indulgence of the Roman Catholic Church gave the previous Pope, had to do with visiting certain relics and doing certain things. You could get a plenary indulgence. So it, as, as far in terms of Rome, it, it being official doctrine that as soon as a in the coffer rings sold from Purgatory Springs. Um, giving money is only one means of, of getting an indulgence. Indulgence just means a forgiveness. And so you can have a plenary indulgence, which is if you if you kiss this statue, you get all your sins forgiven, or you can have a partial indulgence, which is if you do these things, you get so many years taken off of Purgatory. So the idea of indulgences still goes on to this day. That is official Roman Catholic doctrine still to this day. The way it is practiced is not, is as, not necessarily as crass as it was under Johann Tetzel in 1500. So the, the question is, where do the Catholics get the idea that the priests have some sort of special authority on earth?
0: So this verse, this verse coupled with the general concept of priesthood in the Old Testament, which they, they pretty much follow that as well, that the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and then he would offer the offering for Israel. It was his job to do that. And uh, it wasn't the job of the rank-and-file Israelite. And so that coupled with this, and I'm trying to remember where the other, there's another scripture in the New Testament that talks about um, the priesthood. But at any rate, it's those things. And then what what has happened is since the early years of Christianity, they've had decree after decree, commonly called bulls, which is what they really are, from... Um, the, the, the church on high, the ecclesiastical authorities, that decreed how the priest would interface between, as a mediator, quite frankly, as a mediator between uh, individuals and God himself. And so, yeah, this is where, this is the New Testament, one of the New Testament verses that is used to bolster that. But if you look at it, who has made a kingdom of priests? Kingdom and priest to our God, who is? Us. Every yeah, all one of us of were blood saints. Every blood-bought, saved uh, person that is, belongs to Christ is a priest. So we don't need to go to anyone else. Yes, please. And that was First Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 9. That's the other verse that uh, is commonly misconstrued, but really is, can't be misconstrued if you just read it. Right, mm-hmm. and they actually believe that the interpretation that has come from the Vatican is binding upon them. And so, um, and so when you, just just a couple of things. In 1992, um, if the Second Vatican Council is in authority for doctrinal statements. In 1962, at the opening of Vatican II, Pope John XXIII affirmed, I do accept entirely all that has been decided and declared at the Council of Trent. Then again in 95 and 98 and in 2000, These kinds of statements were made. The Council of Trent, and if you read through, I've been reading through a lot of the catechism, is binding on Catholics today. Part of it is the confession. And they actually have to have a a work of the Spirit of God, just like the rest of us did, in their heart, in their soul, to sweep that away so that they can see the truth. So continue to give them Scripture, because it, it can do it where we can't.
2: Emily? Oh, I'd add to that, Nathel. Uh One thing I would add to that, when we're talking with Catholics and speaking to them, uh, trying to give truth, I heard uh, another MacArthur quote. He was witnessing to a Catholic and he boiled it down to this. You know, it's not about what church you go to. So he lived, he didn't attack the Catholic church. He clarified and gave truth of the error of their doctrine. And then he went to the aspect of giving the gospel, but he said, you know, it's not about the church we're going to, is it? And the person he was talking to, a devout Catholic, goes, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, isn't it about Jesus Christ? And from there, he ushered him into the understanding of the gospel. So as we witness to Catholics... We have to understand, first of all, be prayerful when you do. They're uh, indoctrinated, basically, and they do fear that they're going to become an anathema. They'll be cast out of the church into eternal hell. And so when we introduce the gospel, you do so prayerfully and carefully, but be aware that they are destined for perdition. And that gives us the compassion as well as the uh, ultimate desire to give them truth. So it's one. Emily? So the question
1: is, how did the, what does the Roman Catholic Church do with their bloody history?
2: When, if I might say one thing regarding that, when Justin went to that country, and I believe it was, it was South America, somewhere in South America, he, the guide or the person who was with him, he said this is going to be an old school Catholicism. So he articulated that specifically wasn't current practice of the uh, contemporary Catholic Church. But in, in those remote areas that they're still practicing, yes, they, they will, uh, it's almost, uh, I guess you would liken it to Islam. You know, if they're not part of the Catholic Church and they're promoting something that they consider heretical, which they think that we are, then they would take their lives. So it's a matter of truth for their lives, and yet they're willing in some countries to do so, take the life of another. They wouldn't promote that publicly because as we see this current Pope... Pope. Francis, Francis Francis, I mean, he, he is traveling universally and by the way, the Pope, uh, this is important aspect, he considers himself the head of the church and usurping the authority of Jesus Christ. So he goes around the world and he's looked at as the preeminent and he's treated like that from media, from any type of media, throughout the world and people receive him as that. So there's no mention of their former history ever in any of their teachings or anything that I've heard in a contemporary church.
1: No, and I don't think that they would would deny that that's part of their history because they're in a position again of once the church has decreed something or done something by the authority of the church, it is the right thing. It is an authoritative thing. So again, with their history, they painted themselves into that corner of you can't go back and deny what has been done or to say that it was wrong for Pope Leo X to persecute Martin Luther because if you say that what the pope did back then was wrong, then all of a sudden you have an authority that's on par with scripture that you are questioning. So I think that is from what I have seen and observed and from what I know it's probably more mostly an ignored past Mm -hmm. rather than necessarily a denied or or refuted past.
2: It's not something that's promoted in contemporary Catholicism. In other words, he's not going to give history in their sermons or their messages. I wouldn't call them a sermon, because they don't quote, they don't use scripture, interpret scripture properly, but I've never heard of a contemporary Catholic being taught their history, and when you make them aware of that history, they're shocked. They really don't understand. It's like Cornell was saying about telling somebody what Mormonism is. They don't know the history. So when that's revealed, it's actually a shock to most contemporary Christian Catholic, I mean excuse me, Catholics I want to qualify the difference. <laughs>
3: Yes, that's Alan. What, what guys are those? That assumes that the Crusaders were, were born again believers. Well, that's what they were supposed to be in the name of Yeah, they fought for their survival against the invading murderers of Islam in, under a flag of Christianity.
1: Mm-hmm. So Whether the Crusaders are do. Christians or not is up for debate some of them were doing it for the same reason that we might defend our homeland if, if somebody threatened our families. Um, it was a response to is, an invading Islamic army.
3: Now there were, there were, there were, you gotta be truthful mm-hmm. about the history. When Protestantism, after the Reformation, when Protestantism became the dominant religion to some, ter- they did persecute Catholics. They did. They burned them at the stake. So, people are murderers. You now that, that That's who we are, apart from Christ. So when when there becomes power behind something, people join it, and then they exercise their power to exclude other people. It's just sin, yeah. Yeah, it has nothing to do with it. One thing I saw, I think I just saw it yesterday. There's a postage stamp that the Vatican issued. Did any of you see this? It has Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon on it in front of the cross of Christ, and they're contemplating the Bible and the Augsburg Confession. They issued this as a... Tribute to the Reformation. See, they're trying to reach out. They don't have the power anymore. It, to me, it's just like if you read the Quran. the The early days of the Quran are all about peace and being kind to people who disagree with you because they had no power. The later days of the Quran are about killing everyone that disagrees with you because they had power. Right? That's the difference. The Roman Catholic Church today has no power. They don't have that political power to do these things, or they would do them.
1: There's nothing in their doctrine that would keep them from doing that today if they had the political power and the command of armies at their yes, That's not to say that they would. It's just that there's nothing in their doctrine to would keep them from doing that.
0: Men's hearts are dark whether they wear the a P or a C on their robe. And we often march under certain banners when we don't even believe in the concepts that the banner portrays. Um, there are people who, if, if a, a Protestant burns a Catholic at the stake, I would allege that he's not saved, period. Because that is not what the gospel teaches. What the gospel teaches is completely at variance with what men want to do. 180 degrees. And uh, so throughout the Middle Ages when they were killing each other, they may have been killing each other under a banner of Christianity, but they were liars.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And if they do it today, they're still liars.
3: Yeah, and just, just to give you this to look up when you go home, the Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Massacre, read about that that's the that's really the height of catholic persecution of protestants that was in france uh the things that happened there read about that that'll give you an idea about the hearts of men
0: has anybody ever heard the phrase kill them all let god sort them out that came from an actual catholic commander when they were supposed to go into a town i believe it was a huguenots huguenots and uh the, there was a concern because there were Catholics that lived in the town. And the commanding officer said, kill them all. The Lord knows his own. That's not Christianity. All right. uh, make
2: another clarification. I was referring to Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me in reference to the worshiping of various men that they categorize as saints. I wanna add to that one uh, quote by the person they refer to as Mother Teresa, who uh, practiced uh, nursing, I guess, in India for many years. When she returned to the United States, she made a public statement, which I heard her, and in essence, she said, as I was over there in India for all these years, I have met many Muslims, Hindus, and various other religions, all of which are the path to God. That was her quote. So as we think of that, and then when she died, they did a fast track to try to get her fast track to sainthood.
1: So is there any other questions? I got one more, but it has to be answered quickly because we're out of time. And it was Josh that asked this about infant baptism and why, um, why the Roman Catholic Church baptizes babies, and is that biblical, and where does it come from? And uh, I'll, I'll just quickly tackle it if you want to. It, it is a, it, the practice of infant baptism was practiced by the Roman Catholics before the reformers. I think that if the reformers had completely reformed, they would have abandoned infant baptism. It was not on their radar. Justification by faith was. I do believe that the idea that baptizing infants puts them inside of the community of faith and does something to that infant that is special or conveys grace in any way is a Roman Catholic dogma. It is a more Roman Catholic than Protestant practice. And so um, it does come out of the Middle Ages when you had infant mortality rates that were high. Uh, the Roman Catholic did, Church did teach that if you baptized infants, that was a fast track to heaven. That was one of the sacraments that could be done that would convey the grace of justification to that infant, rather than understanding justification by grace alone through faith alone, which does have the capacity of explaining how it is that infants who die before in, in infancy uh, can be justified and go to heaven. Protestants have a way of explaining that without the use of infant baptism. And it is connected to the Old Testament practice of circumcision. They would say that just as the Lord's Supper has replaced the Old Testament idea of Passover, that so circumcision has replaced, or uh, baptism has replaced the Old Testament idea of circumcision. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was the initiatory, the beginning rite of the covenant that marked you as among the people of God. It was something you did to an infant when they were eight days old that put them in in physically, as it were, and by sign in the believing community um, infant baptizer or baptist would say, suggest that modern day that has been taken or, or replaced by baptism. Now we baptize infants as a sign that they're part of the believing community and of course as somebody who doesn't believe or practice infant baptism uh, I believe that that's a misunderstanding, a misuse of the, the whole idea of baptism. Baptism in scripture is no examples of children being baptized in scripture. Uh, baptism is only for a, a believers only for those who have been regenerated and understand the significance of baptism. It is not for infants. So I hope that answers that, Josh. Does it a little bit? Okay, any other quick questions before we begin? Or before we close? Before we begin. (laughs) Before we close? All right. So I'm assuming then that we don't need to have another Q&A. We've covered it all. Okay. Dave, would you like to close in prayer?
3: Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for those uh, those men and women who stood for the Reformation, who stood for the truth, uh, who are willing to die for that truth. Uh, We stand on their shoulders. We're grateful for them. We're grateful for their sacrifice, and um, we're grateful for you, Lord. We're grateful that you gave them the strength to believe, and you gave them the truth in the first place. And uh, so, Lord, we want to be as committed to the truth, and as we come here to worship today, that we want to worship in truth. Uh, We want to pray prayers that are are biblical and true. We want to sing songs that are true. And uh, we want to hear a true exposition of the word, and we want to listen and, and, be, and be careful to listen and understand the truth. For these things in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you
3: can do so online by visiting kootenychurch.org.